0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, Professional Audio Plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, all the pro plugins, one low monthly price, and now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy.
1: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you. The voice you just heard is Mr. Josh Schroeder, producer extraordinaire. Joey and Joel are out today. They're both sick, those bastards. Coughing up yellow shit and uh, not able to be with us. But we got this, don't we, Josh? We got this. Yeah, we got it. Absolutely. Tag team it. Yeah, so for those of you who are not familiar with Josh... You should be. Uh, he's done uh, bands like King 810, Color Morale, For Today, Battlecross, a bunch of other stuff, The Browning. And I think it's kind of cool. I actually had heard about you a long time before I had heard about you. I guess we've worked on some of the same bands, like Battlecross and stuff. Yeah, And uh, I... Want to say thank you for the uh, Nespresso machine.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. (laughs) You're welcome. Are you
1: still using it? Does it still work? Of course. Those things never break. (laughs) They are like a tank, dude. They're so heavy. Yeah. Yeah, So why did you send me that?
2: Like, I would never send that to anybody. Like, I would keep mine. I don't know. I just saw you message it, and I I had this thing, and I hated buying pods for it. I'm just not the type of guy that that buys the pods it just it's not my lifestyle i guess <laughs> so uh i saw you mention I'm like oh i have that exact thing i got it for free a friend of mine was a manager at nespresso in chicago and he gave me one of those and i'm like i'm sick of this thing on my counter and here's a guy who like needs it or wants parts or something i forget what it was so i was like oh, i'll just send it to him you can just pay for shipping yeah
1: see make friends with people because you get free nespressos <laughs> i love it dude I think that for the pod style coffee it's the best. Yeah, you it can really get. is. It's really awesome. Yeah, the the thing though is so I don't really record bands anymore, but when I did, mm-hmm. what I would do is I would have two coffee makers. One for <laughs> them, and then my Nespresso, because if I let them have any of the oh, Nespresso, no, 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 no.
2: it would be it would be gone in yeah. like two days. And that shit's expensive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's the thing, too. Yeah, it's pretty pricey for what, you know what I mean? Because like, you're paying for the convenience of it, but it's really good quality stuff. Like you said, it's, it's probably one of the better quality ones you can buy. Yeah, but... Not to share with, like, right. six dudes. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so let's just jump right into it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about all kinds of stuff spanning your career, but sure. let's start with recent stuff, because I hit you up when the uh, the Never Going Back single um, came oh, out, yeah, the King 810 yeah. song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it kind of blew me away. Let me just Thank say you. that... First of all, I don't really like lots of newer bands. I just don't. I kind of feel like metal has lost its way. Mm-hmm. And I've been very, very public about this. Now, I, it's not that I'm pro-violence or anything like that. It's I don't think it's a good thing necessarily for people to fear for their lives at shows. However, there was... A certain type of dangerous vibe that used to exist in the metal scene. Yeah, absolutely. That I feel has been completely lost. And so when I heard King Eight One Zero come out, I was like, okay, this is what's been missing. Like they, uh, I mean, I've heard the stories about them, and I don't know what's true and what's not. And I don't even care. The only thing is that in the music, the that dangerous vibe really comes forward. And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. I like, honestly, I feel like that is something that, I don't know, it's just gone
2: <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, I completely agree, 100%. Uh, I feel the same way. I really don't listen to much heavy music anymore. I grew up on heavy music, hardcore, metal, thrash, death, you name it. And uh, it really
1: shaped and influenced me. When did you notice it start to kind of. Ninny out,
2: I guess. Um, I feel like in around 2004 is... Yes, exactly. Mid mid 2000s. I think as the recording process got easier, because I think metal bands just used to not give a shit. They would just go in the studio, and they would give a shit about tone, but it was more about performance back in the day, and now it's more about production for a lot of these bands. It's a lot of bands that I used to work with when I first started, the ones that were a little more on the amateur level, they would be more about the production, 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 mix. What about the performance? What about the heart, the soul? What about the, like you said, what about the edge? What about the attitude? That was never really something like, oh yeah, we need to redo this part because the edge isn't there or the attitude or the performance. Now, oh, the mix or, you know what I mean? Like trivial stuff. And I think that's where a lot of bands—they're influenced by the production stuff, which is good. But I think, yeah, like you said, the attitude is missing. There's a bit of a, a bit of a shift. It's a lot safer and easier to consume because it's been mixed well. A lot of the a lot of the stuff um, that comes out, and I suppose I'm guilty of it as well. Uh, you mix a record, and it sounds—it's easy to digest. You know what I mean? So it's it's difficult to figure out where to fix the problem. But bands like King are absolutely, in my opinion, ah. Uh, take it back to a time where it was more about attitude and about the the danger of you know heavy bands when I was growing up it felt dangerous to listen to them like Marilyn Manson even or Rob Zombie it's just like these guys are a little bit twisted or Korn especially their earlier records I felt like I was listening to something I shouldn't and the the mixes were raw and they were crazy sounding and it wasn't about like high fidelity and And all this other stuff, it was just about uh, more about the attitude of things. And records sounded way different. It was less homogenization. So there's a lot of factors, and uh, I think I definitely feel the same way you do. It's hard to really pinpoint what it is, but it's definitely a lot of different factors adding up. I can't blame recording techniques. I can't blame—there's just a lot of shifting attitudes, I think, too.
1: It's hard to pinpoint, but I think we can do a pretty good job here. Yeah. All right, so what's different? Like between working with King versus I mean, I know every band is different, but like yeah. let's if they're the one band out of the mass of bands that you've worked with recently that are like keeping it true yeah. to putting attitude in their music. What's different about working with them
2: versus bands that take the more sanitized approach? Um they have something to say. I think a lot of bands um uh, even back in the day, even back when I liked a lot of metal stuff. There were still a lot of bands that were screaming. They didn't really have, I don't want to say a right to scream, but they didn't really have anything to say. They didn't have anything interesting. It was a lot of like, it's mythical stuff. So if you're going the fiction route, that's fine because there are some good authors out there and they're good poets in, in metal. But a lot of the bands were yelling about stuff that really didn't matter. Whereas King, man, they've been through some stuff and I've known these guys since 2007, 2008. So we go way back and I've seen where they live I've seen a lot of the stuff they've been through I've played shows with these guys that got shut down and police were called I've seen firsthand a lot of this stuff and I've you know grew up around the scene with them and I always knew they would do something because a lot of the guys in the band especially David a visionary something I like to say is there's bands and there's artists and there's a clear distinction between the two Bands like to play music. They listen to a record. They're like, "Oh, I want to sound like that," or "I like, you know, I just want to play in a band that sounds like my favorite bands." Whereas King, um, they're more artists, visionaries. It's it's not about sales. It's just about making music that they want to hear, that they feel just isn't out there, and they're just kind of doing their own thing, and they really don't care what's going on or what's saleable or what's marketable. And a lot of bands do, even smaller bands that just really don't have an audience. They really care too much about what people think. They read too much social media. They let that influence their art. And it becomes, again, homogenized and too safe when you're catering to everybody's comments. Whereas King, they don't, you know, David doesn't go on social media. I think he just got a Instagram. But it's more like a one way conversation. He just sends pictures out, lets people know what he's doing. But he really doesn't engage in that stuff. He doesn't let it affect his art. And I think that's that's a big uh, difference between him and a lot of other uh, people that do music.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. We put out a blog in June called "If You Want a Career in Audio, You Need a Point of View," all about how and well, it really me in any creative field. If you really want to separate yourself from the pack, you need to have a well-defined point of view, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely true. Like it's really interesting to me how you're pointing out that the main differentiator between them and the other bands is his point of view yeah. and how much that's pushed to the forefront and you know to people who are unfamiliar with them this is a band who was underground until they got to roadrunner and started touring with like corn and slipknot and bands l- like that like i know they probably were around for a while mm-hmm. but as far as like making a jump that's a pretty big jump. My band did the same thing, so I'm aware of of the zero to roadrunner thing and how that goes. It's a it's like a complete it's like a game changer for your band oh, yeah. if that happens. And that I don't think that would have just happened with a run of the mill band. No. I know that when a label like Roadrunner signs a band, they want a band who's got something to say, who's going to stand out. They don't give a shit if the band is technical or not technical. They need something that they can push that uh, is going to stand on its own in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And again, like you said, it's, it's not that it's about the sales or anything like that, but but the sales do matter and not, it's not going to sell at all if it doesn't stand on its own. Right, right. Now, what about with the actual recording side? Is there Was there anything different about that? Because, man, it sounds different. It sounds really raw but produced. Um, there's all kinds of instrumentation in there, all kinds of elements, yet it still sounds urban. It still sounds like you recorded a band in the room but it sounds all high, you know, high fidelity.
2: Like, let's talk about the actual recording process. Oh, they're, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, they are uh, probably my favorite band, group of people to work with. There's no limits. Like, a lot of times I try pushing bands, and I'll say, let's try this, let's try that. They're always looking to run with it. Like, like what, what kind of stuff do you mean? Like, I do, um, I did a little bit of writing, with them on Memoirs of a Murderer. I did most of the writing on the new record with them. And any weird idea, they're all for. Because David and I, we, we, I think, connect on a lot of different things. We grew up listening to a lot of the same music. We like a lot of the same movies. And to me, I think the movie connection is more important in a lot of ways than the music connection. Because... As like you could probably tell, especially the new record, it's very cinematic in the way it's approached. Very cinematic. That's that was definitely the the main thing we wanted to do with it. We wanted to have a, a flow, a real wide range of sounds and textures. And we were working on a song, the one you're talking about, "I Ain't Going Back in Again." And he just he starts with the vocals first. He writes like a classic, like a pop. Writer, he'll start with lyrics, hooks, and then the music gets written around it. That's how most of their songs are written. So we even the heavy ones. Yeah, a lot of times even the heavy ones. Not all of them, but uh, but a lot of them are written with the uh, lyrics in mind first. That's actually really unique. Yeah, that's that's how pop works. That's how like you know Katy Perry. That's how uh, a lot of the classic pop songs are written.
1: Yeah, but that's not how metal typically works. Right. Metal metal usually starts on the guitars and drums
2: and then exactly. presented to the vocalist. Yeah, it's all the band writes the music and they're final, and then they send to the vocals like, just put your thing on top. Where at the end of the day, the average listener connects to the vocals. They don't, you know, guitars, drums, cool, but what's the vocalist saying? What are they doing? That's always the number one connection, you know, the human element. A guitarist, I play guitars. I play drums. I play a lot of different things, but and I can relate to that. But most, well, everybody's going to relate to the lyrics, even if you can't understand the language. You can still interpret some uh, some inflection and some emotion. But uh, anyhow, yeah, start with the vocals, and he presented the the hook to me. I'm like, okay, this is cool. You know, I mean, we'll kind of arrange the notes a little, little bit. I'm like, okay, so what What kind of music do we hear underneath it? And we were talking about a lot of classic Bond themes from, like, the 60s, 70s. And that was the kind of thing we really bonded. I'm like, okay. Well, no pun intended. We were looking at, like... Uh, Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra. I think she did Goldfinger, and we looked at Adele. She did uh, uh, what was it? Skyfall. Skyfall. Yeah, great songs, awesome songs. Man, that song is so good. Yeah, those were kind of the inspirations that we were taking. These movie soundtrack songs. We were like, we want to do a song that sounds like it could be in a Bond film, but maybe less European, a little more American. So, so then I was, I got the idea because we were playing some Red Dead Redemption in our downtime. And David never played it before. I'm like, dude, you got to check this game out. And we were kind of in this Western zone, like, well, yeah, I got this idea for like a little guitar lick, because we were joking about um, the classic James Bond lick, that guitar, you know, and how that guy only got paid 20 bucks for that lick. And that's really? it. Really? Yeah, yeah. He only got paid oh, $20. man. That's kind of a, one of the most legendary guitar lines ever. So we were just joking about that. And they were like, yeah, let's put some kind of guitar lick in it, be it make it part of the hook. So that's kind of how that song came to be. So we, we work very closely together on and try to write in a class in like the way pop songs are written, but make that in a metal, you know what I mean? And bring it to the metal world, even though I ain't going back again, isn't really metal, but he does get kind of intense on it.
1: That song sounds like James Bond meets Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's cool. Meets like uh, gangsters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's that's another huge influence. Like they don't listen to a whole lot of metal. They listen to a lot of hip-hop stuff, so that was obviously they did the mixtape. So that was they do a lot of weird stuff like that. Like you wouldn't expect. Like they pair up with DJ Drama and do a mixtape that's got Freddie Gibbs and Trick Trick on it and it's just nobody's doing that kind of stuff. They're they're just light like bands think that they think outside the box but most don't. Most just keep it real safe. And I always try to push them, like, let's really try something different here. But most of them are like, no, 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 no. Whereas King and David especially is like, yes, yes, let's let's do this. Let's go to that end and let's push it even further. So it's awesome. Artistically, I just can't even think of another band. If you gave me the option to work with, I was like, they, I would have more artistic freedom with and have more fun uh, working with. They, you know, what I mean, it's it's phenomenal. I just, I love working with them. I can't say it enough.
1: So, where does the the metal side of it come in? Because, like, on a, tra- on a track like the one we were just talking about, I totally hear what you're talking about. But then, when you go to something like Alpha and Omega, which, by the way, I still hear the cinematic elements in that. And I really like the U2 guitar that's going through the chorus. <laughs> the Edge, yes, yes. Big influence. Yeah, it's sick. And I also really like the chord changes in the chorus. That they, I hear the cinematic elements there. But I mean, that's a pretty brutal song. So, like, do you have any uh, any words of wisdom on how like how you
2: would start a song like that from the vocals? That one actually started with the music on that one in particular. Ah, okay, okay. Yep. That was uh, I have a little history on that song too. That was a song that Maddie Montgomery from For Today approached me years ago he wanted to do some kind of a hip-hop metal album. And I've always been down with that. I've always thought years ago, like, hip-hop and metal are so related in so many ways because it's so rhythmic. You know what I mean? Like, there's screaming vocals and stuff. It's, and it's, it's like off. Ran. Yeah, it's like, it's they're so similar. Anytime that any vocalists have problems with like their phrasing and their patterns, I'm like, listen to this hip hop guy and this guy and this guy. Don't listen to metal because most metal has shitty phrasing and shitty uh, patterns. Listen to these hip hop dudes because they, they're, they got you guys beat. So pull influence out of there and bring that to metal. Do something, you know, quit. You know what I mean? Being homogenized and quit, you know, just uh, being in an echo chamber of influence. Reach out to hip-hop, reach out to soundtracks, other things. So, um, anyhow, I had written that song with Maddie in mind at first, years ago, and it just never worked out. We just could never get our schedules lined up. And uh, eventually, when the King stuff came up and we had a bunch of material we wanted to write, I brought that song out and David really liked it. And they kind of did some rearranging to it. Uh, Beale wrote a a really gnarly solo in the bridge, and um, they kind of made it their own. And uh, yeah, and then I remember telling David, I'm like, I want a song, like, dude, we should do a song like Kanye's, like, I am a God, like, do something like that, man, like, do. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, because he loves he loves oh, Kanye. Maybe not the new record, but for sure, um, Jesus. I remember when that came out and we were both listening to it like crazy and stuff but I'm like yeah we should do a song like that like a metal version of that track like just really feel yourself man really like you're the greatest shit on the planet and just own it so and that's where that song kind of was born out of and then the video they did oh my god is like one of the coolest metal videos I've seen I don't know in like a decade like that's the thing that David is such a visionary, you know what I mean? When he loves doing videos. I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years he quits the band thing and just does, you know, movies and stuff because he's so good. Like the direction and the shots. That's a video you can watch ten times and study the layers and layers and layers. There's classical art influence on it and symbolism it's just layers and layers deep more than you'll ever get just watching it on your phone you know so that video is really evil I love it
1: <laughs> yeah, And, it and uh, but you want to know something even with uh, some of their less produced videos I like them like the kill em all video man I could watch that on repeat I love that song first of all because it's so damn catchy and it's so simple and that video it, the thing about it is that the idea has been done before of like taking news clips mm-hmm. but there's something about the way that they're used to fit with the lyrics that I've never seen done like that before and it's just it's just in intense
2: I think it's uh yeah I think you're picking up on that because David does the directing he directs all the videos he's oversees everything the merch the editing of the videos I mean the live production everything he always has the last seance so when they do that and they do those video clips and they and they splice it all together yeah he's making all the calls of like this lyric and this shot and this lyric and this shot absolutely yeah yeah he's um he's one of those like we all work with control freaks but He has a really good balance of never being overbearing. Like, when I do a mix with them, I pretty much never get any mix revisions. They're just like, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. I'm like, so then I'm like, oh, well, is it all good? Then then I'm the one freaking out. But, yeah, super easy to work with. A control freak in the right way that really helps the vision.
1: A good leader
2: isn't a control freak, in my opinion. A good leader
1: picks a really good team Make sure that they understand the vision, yeah, and then lets them do their thing without micromanaging them. And yeah. Micromanaging them is the. I think
2: that's a good way of putting it. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's one of the quickest ways to kill your team, um, and to yeah. kill the results. If like you really, really care about doing something great, obviously no one can do anything great alone. It's you have to. You know, fact of life is there's only 24 hours in a day. You have to work with other people, mm-hmm. and uh, if you want your vision intact, you need to make sure that those people understand the vision and feel empowered to uh, own it. Yeah, and I think that I there's a reason why micromanagers are hated, and there's a reason for why in I think every single book on management or leadership that I've ever read or anything I've ever learned it's not it's advised not to micromanage people Mm -hmm. so it's just interesting to me that we're talking about this artist that has such an expansive vision um, where the artist gets involved with all the visual stuff the video stuff the production stuff the crazy writing and um, still
2: lets you for instance do your thing yeah Yeah, it's um, he is one of the most he is the most interesting person I've ever met, no no question. Um, This dude's been through stuff. That um, he sent me videos uh, shortly after being shot. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) we're pretty close, and it's just like man. Yet he is the most kind at the same time, genuine like selfless kind of guy he goes to bat to the record label to make sure i get as much money as possible from from roadrunner you know what i mean like things like that it's just like he doesn't have to do this kind of stuff um and he takes care of a lot of people around him there's like you know in flint there's a lot of people that really look up to him just for what he's done and stuff and there's a lot of people that are born into very disfortunate situations that he takes care of and that he takes the time to talk to all these people and stuff. There's, like, 50, 70, 100. Yeah. Mayhem. What was it, Mayhem? When they played Mayhem 2014, I think it was, he guest-listed, he guessed like, I think 75 or 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> dude, it was so funny seeing all, like, the TMs freaking out. Like, why are all these people? They're all trying to get—it was hilarious, dude. It was so funny. But he's the type of guy, He you know, puts everybody on the list. You know what I mean? Like, when they were in their tour bus, they had, like, 15, 14, 15 guys— Row their friends and stuff. were doing teching. It was funny, but everyone got a bunk bed except for him. He decided to sleep on the floor or on the on the couch in the back or wherever. He's the guy. You know, he'll put his team first, and uh, but at the same time, he never compromises his vision. Just a great, just a great person. And it uh, it always bums me out when you see people on the internet. Oh, like, oh, damn it! Just you know, just a tough guy. They're always talking about Flint. It's like, man, it, you've never been through what this dude's been through. You have nothing to talk about. You could, you know what I mean? Like, you don't really have anything to say. But this dude is, like, one of the few people I've ever met that really has, wow, a story to tell. And, uh, man, I got a million stories I could tell about them, that's for sure. (laughs) Losers hate winners. I kind (laughs) of always
1: remind myself of that when I see people on the internet just... Just talking shit about stuff they don't understand or people who are doing better than them, right? Taking swipes or someone who tries to do something different. Yeah. For instance, we got a lot of shit uh, when we started doing this podcast or Nail the Mix, when we started offering audio education, uh, like high level audio education for people, but affordable and it would no longer let it be a secret right. um, like it had been for so long. We got a lot of hate for it. Now not so much. Now people are now people appreciate what we do but it's a different kind of hate obviously than what King gets but I've seen it and I've experienced it and you know, should never let it bother you. That I yeah. feel like if you're getting it, it means you're doing something right. Yeah, exactly. So interestingly enough I read that that you used to have a career in graphic design yep is this uh, true so when uh, because I'm thinking about you were saying that you were influenced by movies a lot mm-hmm. and that that helped your your production decisions and writing decisions on King 810. do you think that stems from your career in graphic design?
2: Yeah I think so. I think I think uh, visual arts and the audio arts are... So related in so many different ways that it just it's I think if you're really good in one uh, field, you just need to figure out the technicalities and you'll be good in the other field. It's um, visual design is about balance and contrast and that kind of thing. And so is audio. It's about, uh, you know, what I mean, when you're doing if you study classic paintings like uh, like a Michelangelo piece, he'll lead your eye around the, the painting in a real pleasing way if you study it and just like audio you direct the ear to follow the lead vocal and then when the lead vocal drops out it follows some kind of lead guitar thing and then back to the vocal and then maybe to a drum fill and then you're leading the listener around and you need to layer things and stack things and balance things to make that um, apparent and not just haphazardly like a bad mix is confusing you know what I mean like you don't know why it's confusing. It's just confusing because your ear doesn't know what to latch onto. What's the main focus? And a good and mix, it hurts. Yeah, and a good mix is it just um, it just sounds natural. You just pay attention to the music. You don't think about the mix. Like a lot of good jobs, they just kind of are there. You know what I mean? It's like what's that classic saying? It's like an actor saying, "If, if I'm on stage and the people are noticing." a tear in my garment or like a mistake in the seamstress's work then I'm doing a really bad job you know what I mean so it's those little distractions and those little flaws won't matter if the main you know your main focus is on point you know that's really really interesting
1: we get that sometimes on Nail the Mix when we put up a session that comes from an album that was released and did really well and someone points out that there was a symbol that was edited wrong Yeah, and it's like well You should be as good as possible at editing for sure because it's the number... In my opinion, it's the number one way to get work as an engineer when you're coming up is get good at editing. Get good at editing drums and vocals and that is how you will get work under other producers. Mm -hmm. And that's tried and true and I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon. So we hammer that in to people's heads. But however, then we put out these sessions where... There'll be an editing mistake or two or three in a song that got released, and it kind of like blows them away because, wait, I thought that you were supposed to be great at editing. How is how did this get by quality control on a big record? And and I think that it's exactly what you just said. The uh, the priority is keeping the vision intact and if the vision is strong enough and if you have the big picture in mind and the song is great and the mix serves the song those little details are not going to be noticed however that doesn't mean that doesn't mean let shit go obviously if you notice a problem fix it but what it means is that
2: there is something more important than technical perfection yeah exactly um I like having a lot of sayings. These are things I like to come up with and collect. And the one saying I like to tell people is a good producer or good at engineer, editor, whatever knows when to fix mistakes and a great producer or engineer knows when not to fix mistakes and when to leave things sit and when not to, uh, interfere with, with the, with the art and the process. And that's a tricky thing. That's the thing you can only get with experience and working with uh, good quality, uh, artists and people that are really have a vision and it's, yeah, that's, it's something that even, you know, today I still challenges me from time to time where I'm like, I like this flaw. I don't know. maybe it's just a personal thing. Maybe it's just, you know, whatever. But my style is usually to leave in more flaws. Than, than the average person would probably care for. I mean, I like things a little more raw. I like to find a balance between, you know, a produced thing, but also raw enough where the character really comes through. And that's a tricky thing to balance, and it's something I'm always toying with, and I'm always pushing one way or the other to see what uh, works with the band and what works with their sound. Well, One thing I like about your productions I've checked
1: out is that I can close my eyes and hear a band in the room. And... I feel like that's something that modern production has kinda lost in that when I close my eyes I hear cannons for drums, for instance. <laughs> right. and, and and it's cool. I love huge sounding drums, so that's cool. But like sometimes I can close my eyes and I don't hear a kit that's glued together. I just hear individual cannons mm-hmm. going really fast or sounding really big. I don't hear I can't I can't like imagine the drummer Beating the fuck out of the kit right next to my head. I hear some of your productions, and I can totally, totally hear that,
2: which I think is cool. That's cool. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm glad. Uh, is part of what's missing. Yeah, that's something that I, I guess when I listen to stuff, I like it to sound kind of three dimensional. I try to place things where they, um, like you said, when you close your eyes, you can you feel like you're there. You feel like you're experiencing something rather than just being bombarded with like robotic drums or robotic voice. The more things sound like robotic, the less um, personality and the less character you have and the less you can relate to it as a human being. We're not robots. We all have flaws. You know, I'm sure if you talk to some bands I work with, they'd, you know, they'd probably, they might point out some stuff that maybe I don't do the best or whatever. And I'm fully aware and that's there's everyone has flaws. And that kind of what makes makes you who you are. The, you know I try to bring out the pros in a recording, in a performance, and I try to bury the flaws, but sometimes leave them in a little bit. But of course, when you're a vocalist or a drummer, you want to fix those. Oh, I slipped up and I hit the rim of this tom on this fill, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That sounds great. Uh, but they might not want to do it. So I try to find a balance. I, you know, I try not to push things too hard unless I really, really believe in it. It really does something to the song and to the, the vision of the song. But yeah, it's, it's always trying to find a balance of that. Um, yeah, drummers being the shit out of their drums, that's something I always encourage. Uh, same thing with guitars. If you're playing heavy music, it should hurt if you're playing the guitar for a few minutes. It should it should be painful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Playing the guitar, screaming or hitting the drums, it... You, like. Twerk from King, dude, he almost needed to have surgery on his arm because he was playing so hard on the opening track of that new King record, I, th- I felt bad, I'm like, oh my, I was like, dude, you really, dude, like the hardest you've ever hit the drums in your life, you have to do it on this opening track, and you can hear the cymbals, they're just like, but and that dude hits hard to begin with, he's a big dude, and he plays with marching corps sticks, like just these th- thick sticks, and yeah, I think he almost needed to have surgery. I think he got rehab, so his soldiers. But it's oh, it's cumulative because he is such a hard player. But I kind of felt bad; I really pushed him. But yeah, I just got done talking to a drummer yesterday. They're coming up the next few days. I'm like, if you're practicing, really, really beat the crap out of these drums. If it's heavy, if you're lighter, hold off. Have these dynamics. You know what I mean? Like like you're saying with a lot of heavy records, it's just like they give you 100. percent. Heavy and and like intensity with the program drums all the way through the record. There's no peaks and valleys. It's just like, da da da. You know the whole album. I'm just I've heard 30 seconds. I've heard your whole record. You have no dynamics. You need to, you need to push and pull and bring it down and bring it. You know what I mean? It's like, the analogy I use. It's like a roller coaster that drops for three minutes straight. You know, fun for the first 30 seconds, 10 seconds, whatever. But then you've, all right. Um, you know what I mean? Like there's no. Anticipation is just drop, 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 drop. Yeah, get me off this ride. (laughs) Yeah, by the time three minutes is over, you're like, get me off this ride, man. So, yeah, dynamics, that's and that's something, uh, and performance is something I'm always pushing to get more out of and capture that. Let's talk about
1: pushing musicians because I think sometimes. Guys that are less experienced don't know how to do it right and yeah. don't, people won't listen to them or they they don't know how to push a musician, for instance, without being a dick. Yeah,
2: that's tricky. That's very tricky.
1: Yeah. So like, let's talk about that. Like, how do you get a guy to hit so hard that he needs rehab
2: afterwards? Like, how do you get inside his head? It's, you have to build a trust with the human being that is, that is playing. Um, you have to know them. When bands come in, I like to ask them a lot of questions: What food do they like? What music? What movies? What video games? Or oh, what do you do? You know, are you in a relationship of any sort? What's your family like? I ask a lot of questions. I try to get to know people and build trust with them. Wait, do,
1: and, wait, do you do this as like a an, a pre recording interview, or is it yeah, over time?
2: It's just casual. As we're setting up drums and stuff, I'll ask a lot of questions um, just to get to know people. Just to, you know, I'm just I've always been a. I'm always curious about people and what makes them tick. And when you get to know somebody and you build trust, you know what they like and what they don't like. And you can push people, you know what I mean, when they trust you, you can push them a little bit more. You can figure out what buttons, like, oh, okay, he doesn't, you know, this person doesn't like it when I say this or that. So maybe avoid that unless i want them to be pissed off on the take or something so you kind of figure out how to work with them i'm sure directors and movies do the same kind of thing when they deal with actors like what can i do to get this person riled up and pissed off but not so much at me that it ruins the take you know what i mean you have to really it's a it's very much a people business um figuring out how to work with them um yeah getting twerk to, to nail the drums you know what i mean and, and he's he's open to it you know we've We've known each other for a while. So there's a lot of trust there. Same with David. You know, I'll get him riled up and we talk shit back and forth. Like we really talk stuff. It's fine. Dude, some of the outtakes are just some of the most hilarious things you'll ever hear. Just, you know, we go in doing vocals and he's drinking coffee and he's flying around the room, yelling, and screaming shit before he even goes in the booth. And he's talking shit in between takes. You know what I mean? Like really getting into character and really just like, you know, feeling the moment of when you're recording. And obviously that comes through. I think that's. You'd have to be completely tone deaf or deaf to emotions to not under- hear that. But, yeah, it's building trust, building trust with artists and, and, and learning them and figuring them out what works and what doesn't, what pisses them off, what gets them hyped up. You know, if they're like working with Garrett from A Color Morale, you know, he's uh, it's I don't want to overshare anything. But like my brother, Garrett, you know, he has his ups and downs. He can very much be happy one day, very much sad the next. And my brother's the extreme of that. So I know what it is like dealing with people like that. And it's hard to, you know, when they have their bad days, it's hard. It's hard work with them because they feel like nothing they're doing is working and it just all sucks and stuff. So you have to try and build people up and get them back in the zone. And some days you have to say, you know what, you need to deal with this you know, on your own because, you know. Maybe on a better day, we'll come back and we'll feel good about it. We'll get you hyped up and stuff. So, and everyone's that's just one example, but everyone has their own tics. That's
1: actually a great example. And I want to just kind of take a second to remind our longtime listeners of how when Joey and I talk about that, we set up a record. In advance to where you could record anything at any given time, like Joey and I figured this out independent of each other. It just so happens that we both did the same thing. Where we'll have uh, we'll set everything up so you could record guitars, bass, drums, vocals, anything at any time. So that when you encounter situations like that, like uh, like with a vocalist who um, you know has ups and downs. From day to day, sometimes multiple times a day, mm-hmm. you don't have to, you don't feel the pressure to have to record right then and there if it's just not a good idea. Sometimes it's a good idea for them to just go sit in a dark room and cry. And I'm being completely serious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it is a good idea to push them to get out of their shell, but sometimes... It's just better off for them to go into their head and do whatever they do, and just track
2: some bass or something. Yeah, yeah, I've kicked I've kicked vocalists out of the booth before because their attitude just wasn't matching the song. I'm like, get out of there, man! You're just you're not putting on a good performance right now. You need to get your head straight. Yeah, I mean, and you know, big bands too. I'm I'm not afraid to do that with people to make sure that your headspace and the song and what you're saying, look, think about what you're saying. Like a lot of vocalists that I've worked with, they'll write down lyrics and they'll they'll go and perform like it's a job or something. It's like, dude, you have to think and you have to really believe in what you're saying. And, uh, Maybe that's one of the reasons why David from King does stick out is because he really does believe what he's saying. And there's no question about that, like more conviction with his lyrics than anybody I've ever met. There's no question. And that shows, you know, so when you write lyrics, when you're, if you're screaming, why are you screaming? Why? Why not just talk? Why not just you know record a podcast? Why not uh, write it down, <laughs> write a blog or something? Why are you screaming? It? Like, why are you yelling in my, my vocal booth? Like, is this, is this the right, you know? Yeah, that's not normal behavior no. for an adult. So no. there's got to be a reason for exactly. it. Exactly. So what is the reason? Like, I've, you know, I've told Christian bands before, too. Be like, man, I'd rather you be screaming about praising Satan than going in there and give a half-assed performance about Jesus. But come on, man. Give it to me. Give me some passion here. You know what I mean? That's something that it's, it's one of those things. Um, you try to get people fired up. And uh, get them to believe in their own lyrics. Because you don't want to belittle them either. You don't want to, it's like, man, you suck. You want to empower them at the same time. You want to look at the lyrics and say, dude, this is cool. This is a, this is a really great line. And I could just see people, I could just picture a kid listening to this with his headphones on, eyes closed. Like, wow, that could really you know, impact somebody because they can relate to it for this and this. Think about the impact that you have this, as an artist and the power that you have. And really um, take that seriously. And um, say it with conviction. I know if you've tried a few times. It's not quite the tone that you want. Just say it, man, and really believe in it. Don't think about highs, lows, mids, and all that bullshit. Just say it. So how it comes natural. You know, if you have to if you have to talk it, sing it, scream it, poop it out your ass, I don't care what it is, it has to sound um, appropriate. It has to just be natural. And the more you force it and like, oh, yeah, this is going to sound sick with lows, like, all right, man your message obviously doesn't matter because you're just thinking about tone. You know what I mean? So I really try to um, work with vocalists in that way to really um, make sure that what they're saying and uh, how they're delivering the performance, you know, like an actor. You know what I mean? Like I tell a lot of people too, like man you're so caught up in the fact that this is a low or you want it to be some sick high or something and that's cool and all but when you watch oscar winning performances of someone really intense are they like doing lows or doing like crazy <laughs> highs with layers no man it's a performance it's heartfelt that's why they you know even you could write a whole book about about whether these awards are are rigged or not but that's a whole separate story but the fact is you can see genuine performances um, that are on the screen and like wow, you know what I mean? Leonardo DiCaprio from Django Unchained—that feels pretty damn genuine. You know what I mean? There's a and 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 it is
1: like uh, apparently you know that part where he uh, where he slams his he- his hand on the table. He apparently did actually cut himself open. Oh
2: yeah, you can see him catch in the eye when he looks at him. Like yeah. I'm gonna keep rolling. And that is that's an artist right there. That's the mark of an artist. Some of that and you capture that moment and you'll never get that moment again but the point is he's not screaming lows or highs he's yelling he sure as hell is yelling but it doesn't you're not thinking about tone you know what I mean you're not thinking about this this low tone or this mid tone or this high tone it just you just perform you know what I mean a, a performance that suits the script perfectly you know and that's the way you should look at your lyrics you should perform in a way that suits your lyrics and your intention and what you're trying to say as perfectly as possible
1: you know what's it what's interesting is i completely agree there's a way of tracking vocals where it does feel like it's a job where it's like okay we're gonna do this high Mm -hmm. this low or this harmony and it just feels like whatever it's like competent par for the course but those times where you really get like that heartfelt shit out of somebody and it's just like yes like you know it, you know it when it happens that's the thing, mm-hmm. we can talk all day about how to do it but it's one of these things where when it happens you know it because like you have an uh, this um, emotional reaction to it and then when you start adding layers and harmonies and everything it becomes an act of joy almost to like start making it sound even better or you then know also if you're adding stuff and it doesn't work but in those situations you know people are always asking me how do you layer vocals right how do you make the decisions well if you start with something super honest that like really locks in that emotion your intuition will guide you if you have good taste in music that is Mm -hmm. Um, your intuition should guide you pretty well I know it's always worked that way for me that once the uh, once we hit that really, really great, honest line, the rest just kind of presents itself. Absolutely. It's like illuminating a road that was once dark kind of thing. Yep, absolutely. I guess that only comes from experience, though, I think, maybe, and listening. I, I gotta say, though, man, like, listening to a lot of music and Uh, I also am big on cinema, so that's a big one of my influences too. But like, really, really trying to understand it and getting getting as much into understanding performances and what really I don't know comes from the heart. Like, if you really develop a good vocabulary of that and knowledge of that from art, I think that uh, it that's where. Uh, how do I say this? That's that's how you train your subconscious to just tell you what's right and what's
2: wrong when you're making these production decisions. Yeah, you're, you're building instincts, like you're saying, yep. doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the cinematic thing is definitely really big with me, and, and I try to illustrate that point with a lot of bands I work with. I'll tell them, you know, think about your songs in the cinematic context. Uh, the band... Your instruments, your your supporting characters, you are background set pieces. You are these grand vistas and landscapes, but your lyrics—that's the script—and your lead vocalists, or two if you have two, are your main actors, and that's really should be the focus. And what you can do to build that up and really drive home the main message, and then everything around it. You know what I mean? Like, so that's something I, I really I try to take things out of the musical context and put it in cinematic and see like what I don't. You know, I know roughly what Andy Wallace would do in a lot of stuff. I know roughly what you know, Butch Vega or some of these other guys would do musically. But I think to myself, I wonder how Kubrick would approach if he was a producer, how he would approach this song like this, or how would uh, Ridley Scott or uh, Tarantino, how would these guys uh, tackle these different uh, musical problems? Lots of racial expletives. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, how, that's how Tarantino would do it. <laughs> No, I, I totally, I totally share that approach. How, uh, d- how do you communicate that to a band though, who might not have your
2: level of sophistication? Uh, just a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue. I like to, um, I like to, yeah, engage a lot of dialogue with the bands, talk about stuff. Not too much, not to the point where obviously, like I have. Usually, we work eight-hour days. I think that's usually about when you're working hard, you're usually ready to be done after eight hours. But still within that, still have dialogue, still have conversation, get to know. What are you passionate about as a human being besides, you know, music? There's other things in your life that have shaped you. What did you grow up listening to as a drummer? Who are your biggest influences? Why is this drummer your big influence? And it might be not even drum related at all. It might be because you love the vocalist in that band. And then you realize that, okay, so now that's influencing you subconsciously this way. So I try to figure out a lot of this stuff and then relate that to people when I work with them. And um, yeah, a lot of them, you know, like I said, it's, it's about if I work with a band... I like it to be a team effort. I like to learn things from people when they come here. I always like to, if a band comes here and I don't learn something from them, it feels like a bit of a waste. But most of the time I do learn something from them. take something away, some perspective on how to approach music. So I always feel like I'm growing with each band I work with. So a team effort is always a great thing to have where they're not completely relying on you. You're not completely relying on them, but there's a good mutual um, trade-off between learning and growing and, um, you know, up with something that's unique that suits the people that are here and their vision
1: so i'm sure that now that you've done a good number of records that are out there and known and done all right that your time from zero to being trusted is a lot shorter than it used to be sometimes probably you're trusted before the session even (laughs) begins yeah yeah but i'm sure it wasn't always that way no um and so i'm wondering How did you get from zero to
2: trust back before you had a track record? Well, it's one of those things, like back in the day, um, when you're starting out, you have to earn that trust. You know what I mean? Like I have to earn that as someone that works with audio. 2007 was the first, I think it was in the spring when I finished it, was the first full-length album I ever did that ever got released through a label. I did hobby stuff, but yeah, 2007 was the first album I put out. And there's a lot of things that, I'm still proud of going back listening to it stuff but at the same time I know I've grown so much as a producer as an engineer as just someone who just looks at the song from top down kind of thing so I think that it's it's not like you don't a switch doesn't happen one day and people just trust you immediately it's earned over time you know, it's a cumulative experience. Just like Tarantino, I'm sure when he started directing and stuff, he worked with a lot of actors. They're like, really, you know, you know what I mean? You, you <laughs> have to earn. You have to kind of I'm earn. Sure. But nowadays, yeah, it's it's a it's a whole it's an honor, obviously, to work with someone like him. Or if Kubrick was still alive today, I mean, even back in the day. But man, if he was alive today, oh my god, it would be people would pay to work on his films and stuff um, because he's such a legend, he's such a visionary, and. So, but over time, I'm sure even Kubrick, when he first started, I'm sure he was phenomenal, because he just always seemed to have an eye for it. But you're still new, and you don't have a ton of experience. You haven't really proven yourself. I think it takes you have to put out just a body of work. It's not a fluke. Like you know, if I just did one record that did well, then it's potentially to say that all that band helped me out more than I helped them. And uh, so, I'm proud of pretty much all the records I've done. And uh, I try to put them out there as much as possible and and have a list like, "Yeah, yeah, go listen to these guys. They never got signed. They broke up four years ago, but they were cool. They did something. We did something interesting. So, yeah, you have to earn that trust like any profession. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, I'm thankful that I'm in a position now where people are aware of my work and they seek me out for stuff that I've done and they want to do something. That's different than stuff I've done in the past, too. And I always love the challenge. I love working with people that want their own sound. They're not just like, can we sound like In Heart's Way? Can we sound like King? Can we sound like this? I'm sure you get plenty of that, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just, uh, I don't have a whole lot of respect for people that just want to copy something else. I respect the influence. And it's you, you have to acknowledge your influences. And you have to indulge them, I think. It's like, I mean, got Tarantino, I love him, but holy shit, does he indulge influences like nobody else, but he does it really well. He does it in a great way that feels not so much ripping it off as, as openly acknowledging this influence and artists will do that to a certain extent. They'll really, you know, I've worked with people that will directly take a line from another thing or a lead. That's pretty much a copy for something else, but like unabashedly. So like really just like, there it is. I know it's, here's my influence. I know that people will do it more subtly, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I really respect people that want their own sound, that do acknowledge those influences, but want to do something like, can we take something from here and something from this and make something a little bit new? Take something from what you did on this record, like that kind of idea, but maybe do it more raw or do it more polished or do, you know what I mean? Like, I think the biggest compliment anyone can give me about my (laughs) discography is that Maybe they've heard a record. I like, oh, dude, I didn't know you did that. That sounds totally different than your typical stuff. It's good. Good. Thank you. Because that means I'm letting the artists and what they do come through more than my own thumbprint. I always try to, like I said, find a a way to help them and build them up, but also back off and make sure I'm not doing too many of the same things. I'm not just, you know, putting out a you know a assembly line style record process, but something that really is unique to this band. Because a band having their own voice and identity is probably the most crucial thing you can have. And a lot of that starts with the record and getting a sound that's unique and a look to go with that. And we'll talk about that too. We'll talk about music videos. We'll talk about their stage look. We'll talk about you know promotional stuff and merchandise. I'm interested in all that stuff. I think it's all fascinating. And I think it should all tie together. And uh, some bands won't quite get that. And an analogy that I like to use that helps them get that is think of Cirque du Soleil. Think of what a grand spectacle that is. And yep. now now think of them perf- performing the same thing in like a VFW hall with the lights on and jeans and band t-shirts. <laughs> uh, it would still be amazing. It would still be amazing feats of acrobatics and performance art. But it just wouldn't be the same, would it? Because it, you're you are distracted by these things that don't suit the message here the colors the 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 lighting the um the outfits everything all the music that really goes a long way to tying that vision together and when these other elements don't work like i'm not saying that um but every band you know has their own look you know i mean there's nothing wrong with playing live with you know band t-shirts if it works with your sound if you have, you know, if you sound like Marilyn Manson and, and you, yeah, and you don't dress the part, it's kind of weird. Not that it's a bad thing, but you know what I mean? Like it's, I try to open people's minds to tie in the visual element with the audio element and try to pick their brain. And once I get information from that, from them, then I'm like, okay, I now I know what you guys are thinking visually. So let's figure out something audio wise that really brings that home too. So that you have one package, like a Cirque du Soleil kind of thing. Where like everything makes sense, the the visual, the audio, the, your outfits, everything kind of works together. Well,
1: let's talk about translating that into audio because I think that that is probably challenging for lots of people. So like, let's just pick a direction for a band, like like the the King, like King A One O because that's who we were talking about. How do you go about making sonic decisions that will? Make it sound raw but produced, and sound cinematic but stripped down, and sound
2: evil yet commercial. (laughs) That's uh, now that you put it that way, I guess that is a little bit tricky. How do uh, it is? There's, I guess, a lot of decisions that just kind of happen. Obviously, the focus is on David and the performance, like any great band, the the you know any huge band. Most of the focus is on that lead vocalist and their performance and what they're talking about. So, what do you do to build that up? What do you do to put that on a pedestal and stuff? One of the songs, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's one of the, there's two title tracks in the album. Um, La Petite Mort, the, um, the first one, was literally a loop that I wrote. I think it was like a five, seven, 10 second loop that I wrote. And I put it on loop for the clean guitar. Yeah, I just put it on loop for, um I don't know, and then David just freestyled on top of it. He's one of those guys that he can just, you give him a beat, he'll just go. Like the first album, um, a lot of the spoken word stuff was just to a click track. He's just like, I want a beat to work off of. And then he just go, 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 go. It wasn't originally supposed to be, be for a song on the original album, but the band, like we took the demos home and the band came back the next day like, I just like the spoken word. I don't even want to hear any music on this. I just want spoken word. I'm like, All right, let's just do it. Who cares? So on the second one, I'm like, the spoken words are cool, but I'd like to score them now. I'd like to take what David is saying and build it up and bring it down and really try to highlight different words that he's saying. So yeah, I just started a loop. One of the first days we recorded, we made that song and I wrote this loop and I just looped it eternally and just, he went in the vocal booth and he just went off. And we're like, cool, there's a lot of good material here. And then we kind of like maybe cut out a few things And then then I just kind of scored it, brought it up, brought it back down you know, where we thought it was appropriate and stuff. And um, yeah, there's there's two. The last track in the album was done the same way. Here's a quick little loop, just some generic strings. Write something to this, and then we're going to score for real behind it and stuff. So I guess it's about understanding the message of the band and really uh, empathizing with what they're trying to say and trying to do and then build it up underneath that to really... Bring it out. You know what I mean? It's. I. I go back to the movie thing again. I think about Leonardo in that scene where he, you know, he's, you know, he's calling out the lies that have been going on. You know, where uh, Django goes to the, to the house there, and uh, and they finally, you know, catch on to the lies that are going on. So he's freaking out. He's calling out, and he's like, if there was crazy crap going on in the background that was distracting, that would be awful. You know what I mean? If there was like a flashing light. Like a flickering <laughs> bulb or you know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in a scene like that to distract you from the performance. I mean Leo's so good. I mean you literally could have a bomb going off in the background and would when you wouldn't even think about it. But there's a lot of things that could go wrong in a scene that would take you out of that moment. If a boom like just kinda like popped down in from the top. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, I'm I thought this was real and now I know it's a movie. You know what I mean? So trying to get rid of you'd stuff have like a that. Christian, you'd have a Christian Bale Terminator <laughs> moment. Dude, I love him for doing that. I mean, I get it. I totally get it. Oh, my God. The lighting guy walking on the set, and he's freaking out. I love that clip so much. Yeah, Christian Bale, he's awesome. Dude, dude rules. But, uh, yeah, it's you try to avoid things that take people out of that moment. Like, what is the moment? What's trying to be said here? Let's elevate it. And there's a million ways you could tackle it. And the, we just chose to do it one way. Um, so there's a million ways you could tackle a problem like that. But you try to build up the story. Like I said, I think about it more cinematically. I think about my favorite soundtracks. I think about games like Silent Hill. Akira Yamioko is so a huge influence on me. There's like two songs on that album that are like, uh, Life's Not Enough to me is like a, my personal love letter to Akira Yamiyoko, his like down-tempo, chill, dark kind of electronic stuff. Which then, in turn, he's influenced by like Twin Peaks and like uh, Angela, who's done a lot of their soundtracks. So I, I love that kind of stuff. And I love thinking about music cinematically. I love putting on headphones and closing my eyes and just being taken away. Maybe it's because where I grew up in Canada, we didn't have cable TV. I didn't have a whole lot of stuff growing up. Not to the extent, let's say, the guys from Flint, but I definitely feel that I grew up in a in a position where I didn't have a whole lot of things, but I was super happy, and the things that I had, like music, I just got lost in them. I would just lay there in bed with my headphones for hours. That's it. Not reading, not on my phone, not trying to do a million things at once and doing none of them well, but just sitting there listening to music for hours and hours and hours and being lost in those uh, soundscapes. You know, I used to do
1: something similar. I, I would do that, and then also I have these huge notebooks where I would write down every single thing I was hearing, oh. like everything. That's cool. Uh, for, And I have that for tons of orchestral pieces and albums and soundtracks where, and and this was before I knew how to EQ. So it was all before I knew anything technical about audio. So it was all about composition and arrangement and how, how they got the point across on a musical level. Huh? And I th- I think that doing that for like
2: fifty songs or pieces really m- helped me make better decisions. Absolutely, yeah. You're studying. You're studying the art at that point. It's kind of like doing um, cover songs, like bands that do a lot of cover songs. You're gonna learn about the anatomy of uh, songs really quickly doing that kind of stuff. Like I'm working with a band in January that's done a few cover songs, and they've done them really well. And I'm like, I, and when they get here, I know we're gonna have a lot of. I want to have a lot of discussion with them about what are you guys doing? Like, what did you learn covering this song and this song and this song? Like about structure, about dynamics, about vocal performance, about lyrics, about production, about how the drums flow. And uh, most of the time people's answer are, I can't believe how simple it is. Yeah, because you're letting the right things breathe. Um, It's not about complexity to me. And this is metal heads are very guilty of this. Is the more notes the better? The more notes I can play on the guitar, the better. It's just like it's a, you're only as useful as a tech, you know, as a technician. You're not an artist at that point. You're. Um, you
1: know what's what's interesting about that is that the best metal bands, um, like, let's go into the tech world for instance. The last tech album I think to turn the the metal world, like on its head was. The Necrophagist album that came out in two thousand and four. It kind of, you know, it spawned a whole new movement of technical metal, and it they never came out with another one, and it kind of hasn't been topped since then. And the writing on it's really good, and you can tell that there's an artistic vision behind it, whether you like the style or not. Mm
2: -hmm. The copycats that came after that that's where it starts to get debatable yes yes they see the 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 basic which is a lot of notes oh a lot of notes equals good yeah no no nope,
1: <laughs> you're missing the point yep. like
2: they're hooks they're
1: within the genre with for that genre yeah there are hooks on that album there are songs there are verses and choruses and you can tell that he was trying to get his artistic point of view across and yeah they take the copycats take the superficial side of it. Like you said, they hear lots of notes and think that that's what it's about when that's not what it was about at all. And you can tell, like we were talking earlier, there's an emotional reaction that people have to stuff that's real. absolutely. And with that Necrophagist album, and again, I'm pointing them out because I want people to realize that we're not saying that being technical is a bad thing. Right. Uh, What we're saying is that being... Just technical is a bad thing. The Necrophagist album turned people on their heads, and they still listen to that because it was real. Yeah, and it part of the the technicality was just the delivery vehicle for the art. But I think a lot of people just don't they don't connect that it's not the records that come afterwards uh, that have come afterwards in that genre that are still being listened to quite
2: as much and there's an artistic reason for that yeah absolutely absolutely yeah I'll take uh, emotional you know what I mean if you're going to do simplicity but you know emotional merit or complexity with no emotional art yeah no question always the you know the simplicity with uh, room to breathe because some you know and some people will try to overstep their bounds as musicians as well to really try to push themselves on something and they're barely able to hit all those notes. It's like, man, you, you're just getting the job done. You need to be able to, what are you doing with that note when you hit it? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's about how, like, I mean, that note's been played literally billions of times in the last decade alone. What are you doing with that note when you hit it? What are you doing? You know what I mean? Like we're all hitting, we're, you know, there's only so many notes in the scale. You know what I mean? Like, So what are you doing with the notes? What personality are you putting on it? It's just like a script. Like, uh, again, a really great script. Uh, Again, I'll go back to Tarantino because his stuff is always so script heavy. He doesn't use a whole lot of words that we don't, you know, no big words or anything like that. It's words we've used before, but it's the way it's put together. It's the same thing with, with music. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but putting your own spin on it, putting your own character on it and letting your personality shine through and not being afraid of that is how you develop your own identity as an artist and as a band and that to me is the most important thing about a band is having your own identity. It's not, like I said, playing a ton of notes. It's not playing too little notes or too many or whatever. It's, it's about having an identity. Like, what are you doing? That's differently. That's, that's, it's different than the, than the, than all, so many of these other bands that are doing very similar things. So a lot of that is just personality and just letting your character show through on a lot of stuff and figuring out how to do that. Cause again, that's one of those things I think it just takes time to figure that out. And I think maybe another thing, I think David actually said this in some interview somewhere. So I thought it was a really good point is that nowadays when it's so easy with the internet and with recording, it's very easy to get a great sounding record out very quick before you know who you are as an individual and as an artist and you're signed. So now you don't really have an identity. You have a great, a decent sounding record. You got some decent songs and the record labels are desperate enough that they'll sign you because it's selling a little bit, but you don't have an identity yet. So now you grow and you alienate your fan base, or you don't grow and you stagnate in this non-identity phase. It's a tricky thing to do, and I think a lot of bands, everything's always speeding up, and it's it's cliche for the old person to say, slow down a little bit, but yeah, developing who you are. I guess it's kind of like a relationship, too, or getting married. If you don't know who you are yet as a human being and what you want to do, and you, you have a lot of personality kinks you're trying to work out. And then it's it can be tough to be in a friendship or a marriage or anything like that. So sitting down with yourself and looking in the, mirror, in the mirror honestly and figuring out who you are as an artist, as a person, as a member of your family, as a member of your friend group. Addressing your flaws, embracing some of them, and figure out what your strengths are, too. Go a long ways in being a better friend, being, you know what I mean, being a better artist. But like I said, yeah, it's so easy to put out a, a decent record that capitalizes on some kind of trends, like, oh, man, Silent Planet's blowing up. And then some other band can come along and kind of try to copy them. And then they get signed by a smaller label. And then, well, what do you have then? You know what I mean? And, you know, you might be at the right place at the right time and have a good manager, a good, you know, a decent label. You know what I mean? And if you get, you're lucky. Yeah, and you get a good tour. And all of a sudden, as the as a second-rate Silent Planet, all of a sudden you're doing really well because people love the band, and I just want more of that band. And these guys fit that bill. And yeah, then you're locked into that. So it's a, a band that comes up that's a fan of other bands and they haven't really developed who they are yet. But I guess, you know, I mean, that's really been a problem as long as music's been around anyhow. But that's something that definitely with is aided by and sped up by the, the recording process and the record label scenario that happens these days and the internet and how fast things move. So there's, I guess the point I'm trying to say, there's a lot of bands that, Come up, get signed, put up records that really don't have themselves figured out yet. I think that's a problem. In addition, of course, what we were saying earlier about uh, overly edited, overly polished music, because and they're more susceptible to that, you know, to their own flaws. When you don't know who you are, you're more um, sensitive to that. So you're more likely to say, "Ooh, edit that Tune my vocals, uh, edit all my drums. Because you're not confident in who you are, you're not sure of who you are. So there's there's a lot of little elements I think that um, bring that all together and make a lot of records that are just Meh. Yeah, just don't really you yeah, know don't really resonate with anybody.
1: Well I think that the, you just kind of put a really good explanation on exactly how the bar is lowered these days because a lot of guys do say that the bar is lowered and I agree. I've been saying it for years, but Oh yeah. You can make a superficial argument where you say, well, people have more technical skills now. Sure. How is the bar lowered when drummers are playing faster than ever? How is the bar lowered when the low end extends further than it's ever extended? <laughs> like, you know, and if you put up a metal mix from now versus like 10 or 20 years ago, now is going to win. So how can we say the bar is lowered? And I think it's because what we're missing is the maturity that artists develop when they find their own sound mm-hmm. and put their own point of view out there. Exactly. That's where, that's where things are getting lost. And that also, I mean, I don't think that the technology side of downloading, there's anything we can do about that, that genie's out of the bottle. <laughs> right. like, that, that, that's over. However, I do think that if there were more artists... Uh, out there, that had a more defined point of view and were more emotionally honest. That sales wouldn't be as traumatized. Yeah, they wouldn't be as gutted. And the proof of that is when you look at artists like Adele, yeah, for instance. That's you know that's your proof that you can get out there still, and if you do something honest and awesome, people the the marketplace will respond. Maybe it won't be like the old days, but it doesn't have to be as bad as it is now. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Hey, guys. A.L. here, and I just want to take a moment to talk to you about this month on Nail the Mix. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. We appreciate the hell out of you. But if you're not and you want to seriously up your mixing game, then you might want to consider Nail the Mix this month. We have a guest mixer, Mr. Kane Churko. And he will be mixing Face Everything and Rise by Papa Roach. And when you subscribe, you get the multi-tracks that he recorded and produced. Uh, You download them. You can enter a mix competition uh, with prizes by McDSP. You get an Emerald Pack version 6. That's like a $1,600 software package. Plus... um, The winner also gets one year of the Everything Bundle from Slate. So really, really good prize package for uh, our mix competition winners. We've also got a second place package that rules. And uh, yeah, if you join Nail the Mix, you also get bonus access to our exclusive community, which is other audio uh, professionals and aspiring professionals just like you who just dork out on this stuff all day and night and love spreading knowledge it's troll free and so whether you're noob or experienced it's a great place to just come talk about the thing we all share which is a love for audio so once again if um, you haven't subscribed to nail the mix yet This might be a great month to try. Um, You get to learn how Kane Chirco mixed the number one single, Face Everything and Rise by Papa Roach. Just go to nailthemix.com slash Papa Roach. That's nailthemix.com slash Papa Roach. All right. So... I want to change directions a little bit cuz sure. we've been talking about art for a while. Uh-huh. I want to actually talk a little bit about the your technical recording process sure. cuz we've haven't even touched on that. And I know our listeners are going to they're going to skewer me if I don't <laughs> at least ask you some questions about about this. So um first of all, let's do a rapid fire segment. A rapid fire segment is where I'm going to just throw out something. mm mm-hmm. Mhm like an instrument or something and you just talk about whatever comes to mind first it doesn't have you don't have to give a detailed answer you could give a detailed answer you could say something like i don't fucking do that or whatever just like whatever comes to
2: mind sure so we'll start with that so uh snare uh bell brass or black beauty or um something with like wood hoops on it i just recorded the ghost bath record and he had these wooden hoops. I think it was an SJC, and it sounded really cool. Every time, I, I always feel nervous because I'm a drummer. And I see the wooden hoops, and I think, man, these rim shots are just going to destroy them. But they don't. And I just realized that I have the tape deck out because we were doing some experimenting with real to real stuff. They just actually left yesterday. Yeah, they, we just wrapped up their record. But yes, there... Uh, black Beauty. I have uh, a pork pie, big black brass, which is a great knockoff of a of a Black Beauty for a fraction of the price. I've used that in a lot of records, and it sounds so different, so versatile. You can do everything with it. You you throw on different head, different tuning, and it sounds like a totally different drum. Tama bell brass snare. Uh, that's on my dream gear list. That one day I would like to pick one up. But uh, yeah, and this SJC I recorded it sounded really cool too. Oh, yeah, and there's a band called Port Out who made a snare drum out of a Tom. I think it was like a, a 14 by 14 Tom. And it sounded so awesome. It sounded so crazy, so deep. Yeah, s- snare drum, okay, snare drum is the most important instrument on an album there we go i've said it the reason it, i feel it that way is because you hear it over and over and over and over the same note over and over a guitar can change notes a guitar can bend a guitar can change effects uh, like delays choruses uh high gain low gain all these different things and you can do that with a snare absolutely but a snare is a backbone of the record with a kick drum with drums to me are just the backbone of the record to begin with they glue it all together they tie in they give it the beat you know, a rhythm is the most basic uh, form of instrumentation. You go back to old tribes, and, and if you study old music, ancient, early human history, it's rhythm. What do you call it? Uh, most languages rhythm. Some languages and cultures use pitch, but most of them are, are rhythm-based. And um, for me, the snare is the kick drum. You can't hear the kick drum on your phone. You can't hear the kick drum on, a, on your cousin's shitty uh, boombox or your crappy pack-in earbuds. But you can always hear the snare no matter where you hear it. Um, so to me, getting a snare tone that's good, that cuts through, that isn't distracting, is a great thing. And uh, if we're talking about snares, I have to bring up St. Anger. I have a love-hate relationship with that snare. <laughs> I, I Right now, I think I love it. I think I really love that snare. Not so much for the tone of it, but for the ballsy, give-no-shit attitude And fighting it must have taken to keep it on the album. I don't know if it was just Lars alone or if the band backed him on that. Because you have to think about all the A&R people and the labels. And everybody involved, the engineers, the producers, the techs that were in the studio. you think somebody would have said, hey, you know, that snare, I don't know. (laughs) And somebody fought for it. Somebody really fought for that ringy-ass snare. And it's the bastard snare of the music world. And the fact that it, it made through such adversity, and here it exists as the most annoying snare that people who don't know about <laughs> recording know, St. Anger snare, there's something about that. I have to, at first I hated it, but now, after all these years, I kind of love it. I kind of love the story of that snare. Just that it even happened. Yeah, that the fact that, that they were so confident in this just ringy-ass, annoying snare that they left it on there. And I kind of like it. I kind of like the attitude. If nothing else, I like the attitude of it, and I like the confidence someone had, I'm assuming Lars, in that that was a good idea, even though maybe I don't think it was a good idea. The fact that you're confident in something that's so glaringly obvious and perhaps distracting, I have to respect that. At the end of the day, I have to respect it. But yeah, <laughs> a snares, yeah, to me, arguably the most important instrument on, uh, let's say, an album that has a lot of snare drum, like a live snare drum. If you're doing like hip hop and you got the little 808 snare, not terribly important if that's the sound you're going for, but in a lot of the heavy music scene when you want those big punchy drums, the snare in those particular mixes to me is probably the most important of the instruments because if it's not right, you hear it over and over and over and over like St. Anger and it drives you nuts. You know what I mean? You can have a okay <laughs> guitar tone and a ball ass drum tone, and you have a good record. You can't have a great guitar tone and a wimpy drum tone. It sounds weak. So to me, that's the argument that the snare is the most important instrument. So I will end my rant on snares right there, but I could go off.
1: Good rant. Um, all right. Acoustic guitar and a dense mix. Ooh. Tricky.
2: Nightmare. I'm trying to think of word associations, word cloud. Um, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> uh, I hope. Yeah. I hope the composition, Uh, is it there for the right reason? Do we need acoustic guitar here? Uh, Sometimes you don't, sometimes you just need to feel it. Sometimes it just adds a little bit of attack when you have a dense mix, like you're saying, when maybe the distorted guitars and maybe some of the articulation is lost. So maybe an acoustic guitar that only if I said, Hey, listen, there's an acoustic guitar, put your ear next to the speaker, put on headphones. Okay. There it is. Maybe that's the right choice for something like that because it brings out Articulation because it's no gain on it. There's no color, coloring of the of the sound. It's just uh, an acoustic instrument, a human being performance. The more gain you throw on top of the instrument, the less human it becomes. Uh, it's a little tricky saying that because you got to think of Hendrix and you got to think of solos and stuff. But it's more human for sure to have less gain between you and, uh, or less effects between a uh, human being performance and the sound. But anyhow, that's a whole other thing. Acoustic guitar in a dense mix. I would say. Yeah, to bring out articulation and some percussion. If it's the right composition, if it's someone shredding, oh boy, I don't know. Yeah, good luck on that one. <laughs> yeah, case by case, I guess. All right, lead vocals, male screaming. Uh again, scream for the right reasons. What are you doing? What What are the lyrics? What uh, What What is it over? What's the music been doing behind it? Uh, When you ask me these, are you thinking like technicality, like the recording process? Isn't that what you're saying? Are we talking recording process? Well, I mean, this is all about you. So it's kind of what comes first. If you
1: have any recording, normally people give us gear answers, (laughs) but
2: but I'm really enjoying your answers. Uh, Yeah, I guess. um, I don't think I do anything crazy gear wise. We can back up a little bit uh, for snare. Beta 52, SM 57, the standard answers. Um, The engineering process, like I said, I don't think I do anything crazy with that. Nothing that would shatter anybody's dreams or, or, you know, but some great revelation to them. Uh, Yeah.
1: No, man, I'm loving your answers,
2: man. You're a true producer. I I like how you think. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. uh, Snare, shells, a lot of times I use API. Uh, no kick and snare. I like to use a Neve, like a 1073. I think that sound. That's a classic sound. It's tried and true. It does what what I like it to do. Um, API is great for like bringing down cymbals. But drums, yeah, snare. I like to use a Neve. Um, I like to use some uh, Apollo. Some of their um, UAD plugins are great. They got uh, great compressors. You know some gating and stuff. Like I said, nothing nothing crazy. To me that stuff is uh the engineering side is you want they're to be good just at tools. it. tools. Yeah, they're tools. Exactly. It's like, well, what kind of hammer did you use? What kind of paintbrush did Michelangelo use to do the you know the Sistine Chapel? Cuz that's the secret. No, man. <laughs> no. But anyhow, but I'm sure he did use a decent brush. He's not going to use a piece of crap. But this uh, or a decent ink too and decent paints and So I shouldn't undermine that, but I guess my brain isn't too focused on that kind of stuff.
1: but Like I said, I love your answers. I I'm more, and your answers are unique because lots of guys <laughs> jump straight to the gear. You're giving us artistic answers and let's just roll with I didn't that. Think, I
2: didn't even think about it until you said lead screaming vocal. I'm like, what should I think about that? I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so, but as far as technical, yeah, SM7B, I got this uh, C414, I have um, an old Sputnik, which is made by M Audio. Which I kind of like that mic, actually. That might be the one. I don't want to say it's a secret sauce. Uh, I've used that mic with David a bunch, even though he loves the 7B. I think because Michael Jackson is famous for using it, so he loves Michael Jackson. So he's always, I want to use the 7B. I'm like, yeah, Who man. Who doesn't love <laughs> Michael Jackson? So, um, <clears throat> yeah, 7B, C414, um, M-Audio, Sputnik. I like the sound of that mic. It reminds me a lot of a <clears throat> like a U47 or U 87 U87. I've rented a U87 before. And those power supplies are a nightmare. I thought about buying one, but then I think back to all the headaches I had using it. And, that, and I'm like, the Sputnik is a great, slightly lesser substitute. But it has, a, they used, um, I think they bought like World War II peanut tubes from the two-way radios that they use in the field. Um, I was reading some stories somewhere. So I don't know why they don't advertise that more, but they um, bought these old radio tubes from the 40s. New old stock, the army has millions of them apparently. And they put them in these Sputnik mics. And it just has a it just I don't know if that's part of the secret that makes them sound that way, but they have a great rich sound. And it's the first mic I ever bought for the studio when I'm like, okay, I have a little bit of money from this band that I don't know that I'm recording, which is the first project I ever did something like that besides just for friends. So like a band comes to me, I don't really know them, they heard something I did. Here's a little bit of money, this is a good mic. And I keep going back to that mic. I love it a lot. I did a lot of research and I still go back to it, but but yeah, the standard answers for vocal mics, and then uh, again, Neve. I like the sound of Neves. So I just have a, I've I've rented again. I had some projects where I rented from Dream Hire out in New York. They rent all kinds of vintage gear, and I remember really loving the sound of those Neve ten seventy three. So I bought a couple, and uh, Distressor, you know, and then maybe I'll hit with like an LA two A at the end. Nothing, nothing revolutionary. I like the LA six ten, if they have like a bright voice, and a little harsh. It kind of darkens it up a little bit because uh, the neve can be very bright very very sizzly in the top end no nothing revolutionary nothing that should shock anybody uh it's about what you put into it in my opinion it's performance like like performance I would record on this phone a genuine performance and make that work in a mix than the best gear in the world all day every day every single time like some shitty mp3 64 kilobit per second if it's a good performance rather than pristine all day that's just the way i look at it
1: i, I totally agree and we've had other guys come on and talk about that like uh, zach servini talked about recording someone on a mountain with oh, an wow. M box, dude yeah and they they use an sm7b as well but still it was outdoors with an mbox you know shittiest
2: converters ever <laughs> and uh Still made it to, like, a number one record. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I've downloaded so many sessions, like, classic sessions from, like, the Doobie Brothers. And I've put some, like, my own mixes online, like uh, Stevie Wonder. You down, You listen to a Queen. You listen to these session files like, oh, man, they are just gnarly. And there's people coughing in the background. And there's bleed everywhere. <laughs> and it doesn't matter because the song's great. It all comes down to great songs, man. It all comes down to great songs, great performances, great lyrics, all that kind of stuff engineering is important absolutely but don't lose sight of the main idea and to me art is all about ideas the good ideas
1: well the thing is you're you're you are still using 1073s and distressors yep. and stuff you're not it's not like you're like oh, just plug it into an octopree
2: right I'd like to sound as good as possible at least my preference on the way in so that at least we're getting that covered. And then we don't have to worry about that so that when we do record and we capture great performance, we're not like, oh, I was running it through an art. I was running it through a pre-Sonus or something. So, um,
1: yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Like you're not, you're not like wasting an inordinate amount of time worrying about this stuff, right. but but you're, you have enough of the good gear to wear, you're at least getting it good quality, so that you can focus on the art, which is the actually important part. But even though the art is your priority, you're not you're not skimping on the signal path. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to make that distinction clear to the listeners: like uh, you're still taking care to make sure that that part is right, even if you think that it's secondary
2: to the art. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's you shouldn't have to think, yeah. Uh, you don't want to think about that. I don't want to go through and and I uh, have to EQ the vocals because they're they're really unpleasant because I don't I have a you know a crappy converter. Or I have uh, you know an interface that's just you know isn't working or the preamp isn't right or I chose the wrong mic and now they have like I said they have really their s's are super harsh and I use like really on top of that a bright preamp and a bright mic and now I'm fighting sibilance the whole album. You know what I mean? You don't want to do that because then it becomes distracting because you know some vocalists just have a natural you know, piercing S sound and you have a great performance. Also, you have pfft, pfft, const- ugh, you know what I mean? It can be distracting. So you don't want to have that. You want to make those decisions right on the way in. And, a lot of times the vocalist they'll hear it that the I'll put I'll try the try this mic. Oh yeah, I like the sound of that one. Oh this one, no, don't like it. You know and the C four fourteen has got different patterns on it, and I'm not too particular. I let them like cycle around. What what sounds best to you? Oh a figure eight. Oh all right. Well let's run with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you like the sound of it, even though I wouldn't choose that, but you like the way your voice sounds, and it's not going to make my life a nightmare. Let's run with that then. The, you know there's a lot of decisions that I'll do like that. Like guitars, people are bringing in a guitar and like oh god they love it they love the way it plays they try a better guitar but i got a few here and they don't they can't play as well on it well let's just use the shitty one because you can perform better with it and it just you're more comfortable with it and i'll do fix some EQing and fixing it both <laughs>
1: well in that case the whole tone is in the hands thing comes into comes into focus like yeah, yeah for getting the best DIs DI possible you do want to optimize the guitar and the pickups and oh, the yeah. cable and the strings and mm-hmm. all that stuff. However, all of that goes to shit if the guitar player can't play. Right, right. So yeah. the the very first thing you need to make sure of is that, that the guitar player is comfortable. And this has happened to me on a, quite a few records. Yep, me too. Um, like, if right now the contortionist is coming to mind where... Those guys had these Ibanez guitars that Ibanez gave them, and I had an Ibanez deal at the time, and I had way better Ibanez guitars than they did. And so I wanted them to use mine because they're like, I know you guys are into your guitars, but like, it's the same brand. Like, if you're going to be loyal to the brand, just use some of mine or some of Sukhoff's, because I was was with Sukhoff at that point in time, and he also had an Ibanez endorsement. So we had like 17 Ibanez guitars that were better than the bands, (laughs) but they did not feel comfortable with our guitars. Mm -hmm. And so we went with the lesser guitars, and no one has ever complained about the guitar tone on that record. People actually loved it. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that those guys felt at home playing on their mediocre line Ibanez guitars, as opposed to our top-of-the-line ones, and the record didn't suffer. Now, right. could it have been 5% better if they had used one of mine? Maybe. Arguably, maybe. But then again, if they weren't comfortable, maybe it would have been 20% worse right. because of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like all, all these things that we always talk about, about optimizing your signal path, it all goes to shit if the player uh, can't hang with it. And also the... Uh, Most important part
2: of the chain, yeah.
1: Yeah, another good example is, you know, people always talk about thicker strings, better tone, but what if the dude can't play on thicker strings? Dude, yeah.
2: Then you're, you're going to have the exact opposite. Yeah, because some guys will come in with these thin strings. And it's just like, oof, this is going to be a tone nightmare or a tuning nightmare because I want you to play hard now on these chords. And sometimes that can be cool. And a lot of times it can be a tuning nightmare. Well, we just take more time to tune. That's fine. Uh, And some guys love playing on thick strings. Man, uh, what is uh, Andrew Beale from King, I think, plays on like, what's his top string? 70 something, 76, 78? And he plays a normal scale EC1000, so it's like nothing moves. <laughs> Ele- nothing moves when he when he slides. Elevator up. cables. Yeah, really. It's it's so tuning's awesome with that. I mean, it's great, but uh, wow, you got to have uh, fingers of steel to do any bends on that thing. Okay, so
1: speaking of that, next item in rapid fire is uh, heavy rhythm guitar. Heavy
2: rhythm guitar. Um, man, uh, let's see. Uh, I like to do a lot of different things. I'll, I like to use everything, every tool out there, because everything, depending on what the sound the band is going for, will dictate how I approach it. Um, um, with In Heart's Wake, I think I did some pod stuff with that, because it just sounded to me right with the mix, and it just, at that point in time, in my headspace and, and the, what the band liked, that just sounded best. I've done a lot of stuff on the Kemper, the new King record was on Kemper, the new Those Who Fear I just did is on Kemper. Um, it sounded good. We liked the way it sounded, and I've done live amps with them before. Ghost Bath, that was just here. I wanted, I wanted a different vibe. We just did live guitars, no DI's, no nothing. Just like old-fashioned, pull the guitar into the amp, get a really long uh, in, uh, speaker cable, and uh, put the amp a few doors down and just jam it, and no looking back kind of thing. So it really depends. I mean, if that works with you know with Ghost Bath's kind of sound, that works with them, that wouldn't necessarily work with uh, other bands that I've worked with. So to me it's all about the right tools for the right job but I love the Kemper it's cool it's a great it's a great tool pod can still be good it's a little digital but sometimes that's the sound that you want I just did a record for um, Alistair Hennessy that's coming out soon and we, <laughs> what did we do we plugged in guitar to do something oh yeah I wanted I wanted to run it through an art preamp just a cheap preamp di just because just because and it was on the, what, what happened now it was on the wrong bitrate setting. We were recording at like 96 and it was set to 441 or something and it was so, it was it was out of sync and made this weird like digital bit crusher clippy sound. I'm like, this is cool. We'll just use this as a lead. They loved it and it's like, that's a weird sound that I've never realized I think can make. I think just because it was set off. So in a situation like that, you'll do something like that too. But um, yeah, with guitars, I try to use, I got guitar rig. Sometimes I'll use that. Um, so I'll use everything from digital to Kemper, to live stuff, to recording live with DI, to reamping later. That's another thing I'll do. Most of the time I'll, do, I'll record DI. So that way, if later on we want to reamp, we have that option. But most of the time when I record guitar, I like to get the tone as close to the final as possible. Like I tell them, we're dialing this tone, let's dial in one that you're willing to keep and live with because it's gonna affect performance. Um, when you love the guitar tone, whether or not I love it doesn't matter. Whether the band, if the guitarist loves the guitar tone he's playing it, he's going to play better. She's going to play better playing this guitar tone because they can feel it better that way. Just same thing with vocals. Like I like to get all my preamps, all my compressors dialed in and and print as we record with compressors and everything because they're going to hear that and they're going to play off of that. So yeah, with guitar, um, try to nail it on the way in but if not most of the time i like to do di for reamping later either and i will i'll also reamp with a pod or with live or a combination just it really depends on how i'm feeling or you know what i'm into that particular month
1: i like that man i you know the whole uh playing favorites about guitar gear really bugs me it's yeah. like it's like you're not choosing a sports team dude it's just a <laughs> tool for- i used to
2: be that way i used to be so i i was such a hardcore kid all live drums, all live guitars. You know what I mean? Like minimal punch ins on vocals. I was very much a purist that way. And for some things, sure, that's 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 a great way to approach it, but not all things. You know what I mean? Like I like to work with all kinds of stuff. I've been doing a lot of hip hop this year. I've been doing I did some country stuff and jazz stuff last year. I love it. I love the variety because it gets you it gives you a chance to bust out new brushes out of your uh, of your toolkit and work differently and think about things differently. Cause you're going to mix jazz drums way differently than you're going to mix, mix uh, a battle cost drums or something. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's fun. It's great. And it, it makes me learn from these different drummers. Like that's cool. What he does on the jazz thing. I can maybe bring that over here. I mean, directly there's a jazz song on the King record that I got some ideas from the jazz record that I did. I'm like, this is cool. I never thought about, you know, doing this kind of thing on the drums, but this is a very much a jazz drummer kind of thing to do and hip hop and stuff as well. I listen to a lot of hip hop these days, so that's obviously very prevalent on the King mixtape and on the new record. When were we talking about guitar? Yeah, like you're saying, choosing a sports team, use the right tool for the job, and it doesn't matter if it's digital, it doesn't matter if it's live, whatever it is, if it sounds good and it works with what the artist, what the band's vision is trying to get across, then that's the right tool. I don't care if it's a little pocket, you know, hip <laughs> thing, or if you're just running through your phone on one of those, you know, cheap uh, two dollar amp sims. If it sounds right and has the right sound for the vision, then that's what you should use, you know? Totally agree with you there.
1: Across the board, I agree with you on this stuff. I wish more people thought like this. Music would be better. Yeah. And I can't tell you how much I used to feel like I was part of the problem when I wouldn't take that approach of Mm -hmm. using what's right for the part. So, yeah.
2: All right. How about... Overheads. Overheads. Uh, man, I just use these uh, cheap octava, Russian-made octavas that I got years ago. I've never found I had a problem with them. Um, whistly cymbals, I've used some really nice vintage gear, some coals and stuff. And to me, the biggest problem with overheads are whistly cymbals. And that's a cymbal fault, not so much a, a mic fault to me. Uh, the room you're recording, obviously, uh, uh, it factors in. But sometimes with overheads, I'll do XY pattern if I'm feeling it for whatever reason. Sometimes I'll use a traditional mic in in groupings from the top down. Sometimes I'll angle it to try and get a hi-hat out of my line of sight or line of earshot because hi-hats are always (laughs) barging in where they're not welcome. trying to think. uh, Overheads, yeah, API. I like the sound of the API. Sometimes the Neve, if it's really dark cymbals, I really like dream cymbals for some reason. I am not endorsed by them or anything but I've recorded them a hand- I've never even heard I've never even heard of them. I've recorded them a handful of times now. I did it on the Browning record and on Alistair Hennessy and I think there's one other drummer that brought in some dream symbols and they're super dark and I love them. I I seriously need to talk to them about getting an endorsement because they're I love I never have to worry but most of the time you never have to worry about symbols being too dark. That's almost never a problem. It's always too bright. It's always because I like, a, no, it's all—it's all about which frequencies do I need to cut. Yeah, and most of the time, I like getting more of my drums from the overheads. I like the snare cutting through, but when the cymbals are so brittle or harsh or just way too hypey in the top end, I can't get that without bringing a lot of cymbals along with it. So those dream cymbals—it also helps that those drummers are really good, the ones that brought in the, the dream cymbals. But I felt like, wow, they are wide sounding and they're just huge. I love it. They're really easy to work with. So maybe that's something I need to look into. But overheads, yeah, Octavas. Sounds like something I need to look into. Yeah, no, seriously, it's, they recorded beautifully for me. And they're not a well-known, like you said, they're not a well-known simple company at all, but they just sound dark and they they sound great. But yeah, overheads, just those simple pencil condensers. I've rented a few others. I've used Kohl's. I've used, I forget what it was. Maybe you know the mic. It's got like two capsules on it. Uh, I think AKG makes it. It's got like a, a big old knob that's like a pattern selector i know uh, I what you're what talking called. about it's just like a big and you'll just put it overhead and then like it's like yeah a the X name's line. escaping me yeah. i know exactly what you're talking about i used that i, I rented that for the first king record and i thought it sounded fine to me not marginally better than the king record i just put out with the Octavus. so it's just like uh, you know uh, again so much of the tone is in the symbols in the room in the player and uh hiding the flaws of your room, for example, because I don't have the greatest room in the world. I've recorded in garages, and it's funny to see like labels come out, like Roadrunner will come out and be like, "This is where you record the drums." You need to get the measurements of this room, man. It sounds so great. It's like, no, this is a shitty room. I just figure out a way to make it sound good and try to hide the flaws and put up dampening where it needs to happen and and then EQ it a little bit in the mix to to kind of push that away. So. Yeah. Um, overheads, still Octavas, again, they are one of the first overheads I've... I, just, I love them. They just, for whatever reason, they just sound good to me. I don't find anything wrong with them. And I've used some of the best mics in the world for overheads, and I wouldn't... Maybe if I had unlimited income, I might buy a few more, but to me, it's not really worth upgrading them right now. I have no... I've never had anyone complain to me and say, man, those overheads, the album sounds great, but those overheads are just not for me. So, I don't know. Not expensive mics, that's for sure. No, I know they're not. I... I used to have some, and I never actually used them. Yeah, they've they they they've, they've, they've treated me well. I've had them for like five, six, seven years now. Yep, been using them ever since. All right, so that's it for for the um, for the rapid
1: fire, which wasn't really rapid fire. Sorry. But your answers, no, no, your answers were great. <laughs> Thank you for going into so much detail. So. We are coming to the point where I need to wrap this up, but one more question that I have, and we ask this of everybody, which is, um, do you have any advice for people that are trying to come up now in 2016, 2017 in production? What would be some advice that you'd give for them, producers, audio engineers?
2: Uh, I would say don't go to school for it. (laughs) Uh, I'm the the advocate that says don't go to school for anything art-related almost ever, unless you have the money to drop and you just want to do it for fun. Don't ever think that going to school will help you at all. Um, Especially now, I learned by the seat of my pants. I never went to school for it. I never looked up anything online until like, uh, honestly, a few, like within the last four or five years, I started, oh, okay. I wonder how people do this or that. Most of it, it takes, it'll take you a lot longer, but you'll remember what you've learned and you're going to develop more of your individual voice as an engineer, as a producer. So school, to me, there's a lot of information you can get there that's good. I'm sure I'll get a lot of slack for telling kids to quit school. No, I, I always tell them to go to school for something real if they're going to go to school. you right. Yeah, exactly. A, bi- a real job. Get a business.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, just get a business degree yeah. and then learn, aud- learn audio anyways because... The business degree will serve you in your audio career. Absolutely. If you're going to get a degree,
2: get a useful degree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that, um, and I took a lot of art classes in school, and I took some music classes too. And the art classes, it's just one of those things. You have a lot of dream, like a lot of people who like the idea of being an artist, like the idea of being an engineer, but they don't want to put in the work. And so much of this job is wanting to do it. If you have to drag yourself to school, you're not going to make it. You have to be already doing this in your free time. You should be, you know what I mean. Like first record I did I had one SM57, and I literally plugged it directly into my computer from like a quarter inch. What was it? An XLR to an a eighth inch to a quarter inch right into my sound card, and uh, you can make records doing that stuff. That's that's you know especially now holy cow, you have so much, so many great cheap plugins at your disposal. It's, it's insane. So, um, and free ones, you can make a record out of free ones. You have Reaper, you can use that for free. That's what I use. I love it. And I would say, yeah, just get your, get your hands dirty. You know what I mean? Really get some hands-on experience because what you learn in school are the fundamentals that the most generic possible fundamentals. And even those can be, I've worked with producers before. I worked with another producer on, on one of the records that I did, and we had an LA two A and I was messing around with it and he's like, Oh yeah, never never use more than the three decibels of reduction on an LA two A. I'm like, why not? Why? Why would where would you hear where would you hear that? If I slam this thing and that needle's buried all the way left for the entire take and it sounds cool. Why? Why are, you, why are you stuck on that rule? And I'm afraid that that's what happens when you go to school. You've paid a lot of money. You want to justify, just like gear. You want to justify using it. And <laughs> you become tied to these rules. And uh, I'm definitely all about not having rules when it comes to um, music or anything art-related. There's a lot of fundamentals you can learn. But a lot of it's so basic. You could, it's pretty easy learning online. There's, yeah, I would say my, 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 if I had one regret in life... It's that I went to school for art. I wish I wouldn't have gone. I I accumulated a lot of debt doing it. It didn't help me anything. I didn't get a job from it. I I didn't really learn a whole lot. Art history was cool. That was a lot of fun. But fundamentals... Again, if I had the internet, I could have looked at all this stuff up pretty easily. So, and um, I guess services like Nail the Mix didn't exist back then. Exactly, man. What a what a what a resource that is. You know what I mean? There's there's so much out there that you don't need to go to school. Save that. Oh my gosh, if I could have get that money back and put that towards gear, that would be wonderful. But I would advise people to do exactly that. Um, save the money, put it towards gear. Buy either really cheap gear or really expensive top end gear. Don't buy the stuff in the middle. Don't. You know what I mean? Get the, the cheap stuff that works or get the really good stuff that's pretty much top of the line that you absolutely love and wouldn't ever compromise. Like, to me, a 1073 is like my favorite preamp of all time. I wanted that preamp. I don't want to ever get like a knockoff. i it. like, oh, I wonder if I want to. I want the sound that I want. You know what I mean? Or I'll have something cheap. Plus, it'll keep its resale value yeah, if exactly. that ever comes up. Exactly. So save your money buy good gear the gear that you like the gear that sounds good to you do a lot of research the, you know, oh my gosh I just think to back to like when I was doing this stuff and record. I remember renting gear in Canada from Mother's Music I would go in there and I'd rent gear for the week I remember renting a Neumann for like 20 bucks for the weekend or something i'm like no deposit i'm like how does this even work <laughs> but it's canada i guess they just figured that... It's canada i was about to say <laughs> people in canada people in canada are nice so i remember oh man i probably damaged it um i remember renting compressors and reverb things and mixer boards and mics and had no clue what i was doing but just plugging things in and seeing what works and um that's a great way to learn because you um it sticks when you finally get it. There's nothing that will make you remember something than messing with a setting for like two hours and it driving you nuts and you don't know how to fix it. All of a sudden something clicks and then, yes, I'll always remember that. But if someone just says it to you in class one day, you might never, you know, know—you'll you know, chances are you won't remember it. So yeah, learning by of your own volition on most things to me is, is I'm a strong advocate for that, definitely. Same
1: here. Actually, one of the reasons that we started doing Nail the Mix is because ten years ago or whenever when we started there was no resource like this and so no. finding information was like so tough. Especially if you wanted to learn how to do metal yeah. or something. There like you could go on the sneak forum and maybe he would post a couple of vague tips and that's it. If you went to school, they wouldn't teach you how to do this stuff. No. They teach you how to route an SSL but like the you wouldn't learn how to make heavy badass sounding records there's literally nothing so yeah i i think that people now have an advantage of infer in terms of being able to educate themselves on this stuff that is kind of unprecedented and they don't need to waste their money
2: with and go into debt dude there's a whole rant i could go off about the education system and how it's set up to make money it's not there to teach you it's set there to make money and you have to understand that and um you know, approach life and what you're going at Cause you might, you know, you might want to go to school for certain things though. At the same time, I don't want to get myself in too much trouble, but there are certain degrees that you might want to get. Let's say I don't want to necessarily be a metal engineer or producer. I want to go into Foley work. I want to go into sound design. I want to go into commercial voiceover work, radio work, that kind of thing. And a lot of times they might need a lot of um, people who have degrees who they just need a lot of people to help. Enge- and it's, a, you can work your way up, Through something like that, so I don't want to poo-poo on all education that way. In those particular fields, you probably
1: won't get hired without a degree. Yeah, exactly. So that's important to to note. But I think that when it comes to like working with bands, working with bands and non-Hollywood work, it it kind of is irrelevant when you're dealing with something that's more
2: unionized and corporate. Yeah. If that's what you want to do, you know what I mean. If that's if that's where you see yourself going, yeah, yeah, you want to go, right, right, More right. More power to you if that's what you want to do. But what you do, what I do, what Joey does, what uh, you know, what all of these other people do, the most important thing is your portfolio. So build that up, um, get good gear get good recordings read up online be a sponge you know soak it up go on youtube go on this you know listen to this podcast listen to all the other nail the mixes there's so many resources out there just absorb the information apply it try experiment and build up a portfolio because a great way I mean that's how I landed some of my first gigs recording bands was like they heard my work and like I love the sound of that album can you do our record and it's not a degree, it's not, you know, an advertisement or anything like that. It was just, it's a portfolio piece. It's something that this album sounds good. This guy can make these sounding albums. Let's work with this person. So, um, yeah, your portfolio massively important for this line of work. Absolutely. And the sooner you get
1: into building your portfolio, the sooner things will be good because like a lot of the stuff we talked about in this podcast is stuff that you're not going to be good at it until you have some experience right. like yep. the developing the artistic side of this shit like that takes that that's not a technical skill you can learn that has to do with your subconscious being on point mm-hmm. and you need to feed it for years and w- through experience and through studying the art of music and cinema or whatever yeah so the sooner you get on to the task of building your portfolio and taking this seriously, the better. And, um, you know, sometimes spending four years at school is just four more years that you're going to have to... Four more years delayed
2: before getting serious. Yeah, absolutely. It'll take you a little longer. You know what I mean? It will. I think going to school can uh, expedite the process because you're going to get a lot of the fundamentals. You'll you'll learn maybe a little quicker some of the stuff, but maybe not. You know what I mean? There's there's. I think about like the basics of compressing, the basics of you know how to use a gate and just all these like basic tools. You could probably learn faster by going on YouTube. Honestly, <laughs> you know what I mean, dude. We have a an
1: upper level called URM Enhanced. Not to get too pluggy, but right. like we have these videos called Fast Tracks, where they are like how to actually hear a compression. Uh-huh. Um, how to develop? We have an EQ method that you can. It's called LDFC, and it's so that you can approach EQing the same way every single time, mm-hmm. so that you can just get it done and out of the way. Yep. Like EQing shouldn't be an artistic thing that you have to think about. And it also shouldn't be this thing where you're hunting around trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like it should be a process, a scientific process. You repeat it every time you do it quickly and you move on with your life. So we have a series of these fast tracks on there for these problems. Exactly. Cause you could go on YouTube, but you could also sit there for like eight hours trying to find yep. someone who explains it. Right. You know, like, that's the problem with YouTube is that you don't always know who's giving you the info, if it's good info or not. And so you can go down a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, still, these resources did not exist a while ago. <laughs> no. And uh, you do not need to go to school in order to learn how no. to do this stuff. No. So. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome talking to you. Yeah, no problem,
2: no problem. Yeah, it's been really fun, I f- man.
1: I feel like uh, like we could probably go on for another two probably, hours. So. Probably. So here's here's <laughs> my in- invitation to come back on in a few months. I would love it. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. I would I would definitely do it again. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much.
0: The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP Professional Audio Plugins. For over fifteen years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry acclaim and award-winning software titles. Visit mcdsp.com for more information. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital. All the pro plugins, one low monthly price. Visit SlateDigital.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.